This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Everyone, it's time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview Radio Program, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic, we are going to again be discussing the meaning of life and can you find the meaning of life through logic, reason, and building upon the kinds of things that we know for certain. Please check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can look at archived shows, or you can listen to us on iTunes. Well, Kirk, we've got a couple of exciting discoveries, one in the world of science and one in the world of history. So, let's see. The first one, this is from Evolution News and Views, and it's about an article that appeared this month in the journal Nature. And it's some more information they have discovered about an amazing machine, an amazing machine called the proteasome. And this is the cell's shredder and recycler. So, this is an amazing thing. It's a a barrel-shaped molecule. It has a flip-top lid. And anytime the cell wants to recycle a protein, it will send the protein to this dumpster, this trash recycling system. So it validates the trash, it pulls it in with a motor and shreds it inside this kind of barrel-shaped machine. So it's described as a massive proteolytic machine. It's very, very large for a molecular machine. And it's composed, the barrel portion is composed of 28 protein parts. Active sites on the inside of the walls of the barrel uh, cleave the polypeptide chains into short segments about seven to nine amino acids long, which then can be reused by the cell directly, or it'll further degrade them into individual amino acids for recycling. Is that amazing? And this is all taking place in our, each one of our cells, which is so small you can't even see it. Exactly right. Isn't that incredible? So here's a quote from the news article. It says, obviously, this dangerous interior must be protected lest it run amok like a chainsaw murderer. That's why an elaborate lid structure composed of 19 more protein parts guards the entry gate and checks the credentials of each protein that enters. To be validated, a target protein must be previously tagged for destruction by other molecular machines. And the tags are called ubiquitin. So before being used as a tag, ubiquitin must be activated by additional enzymes through a sequence of checks and balances. Then the tag is fastened onto a tail of the target protein, an unfolded portion long enough to fit into the proteasome chamber. Uh, Then other enzymes then attach themselves onto the ubiquitin tag and the proteasome requires four ubiquitin tags to be to allow entry. 
So there's a pass system, there's a marker system, transportation system, and then it finally gets to this machine, which then um, uh, identifies it. So it says the lid is a complex of specific proteins tasked with recognizing the ubiquitin tags, removing them, initiating the unfolding of the target proteins, and starting its descent into the barrel. Just underneath the lid, the base is a complex of six proteins forming a ring over the barrel opening. It grabs validated proteins and threads them into the chamber. It's that amazing. Uh, incredible. So, so we're saying if, if you've ever seen a recycling facility, with, which like usually takes up an entire city block, we have one of those in each one of our cells. <laughs> exactly, and numerous of them in every cell. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. So another irreducibly complex machine that shows the intelligent design of life. Whew. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Something to think about. That's like, these, that's like walking by one of these recycling facilities and saying, oh, that's interesting that that all built itself. <laughs> exactly right. If you can figure that that uh, created itself, then you can figure that these machines created themselves. We had a tornado yesterday, and it blew all these pieces of cement and wood and brick and everything and made this facility. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> right. Now, the atheist screaming at his radio or iPod is saying, but cells are living things and they can reproduce themselves. But the problem is, you, without re being able to recycle the proteins, you don't have the living cell. It's, it dies. Right. So you need these things for life. You need all these molecular machines or you don't have life in the first place. Right. So that's the problem with that. <laughs> all right. The uh, second discovery, and this is was announced this month by Daniel Wallace, who is a New Testament scholar. He's a great guy. I've heard a, a talk from him. I was able to ask him a question about New Testament last time I heard a talk. And he has announced the discovery of six new uh, New Testament manuscript fragments. So it appears that five of them, let me see if I've got my exact, oh, okay, I'm sorry. So it was seven, not six. Six of them are from the second century. Here okay. we go. Six of them are from the second century, and one of them is from the first century. Okay. Now, previously, the oldest manuscript that was confirmed was P52, dated somewhere between 125. I think I've even seen some critical skeptics who have placed it around 160, but still well in the second century. And these other six are from the first half of the second century, and one of them probably from the first. It says here that it was dated by one of the world's leading paleo paleographers. So this is how they date these manuscripts, is by how the shapes of the letters have changed over time. So depending on what the shape of the letters is, that's how they date them. And he says that he was certain that it was from the first century. So these are going to continue to be examined. They were, you know, just recently discovered. So they'll be continued to be examined. And uh, this, so that may not hold up that it's that this one is from the first century, but uh, certainly exciting news. So if it is, does that mean these are the oldest fragments we have yet of the New Testament? Yes, this one would be the oldest confirmed. There are. Uh, very, very tiny pieces that have been suggested are from the first century, but they, unfortunately, they're so fragmentary that not a lot of people put much stock in it. Okay. So even though there is some evidence of very tiny pieces, like, you know, pieces with only a couple of letters on them, right. that's no, all. 
nothing of real significance then as far exactly. as the text is concerned. Exactly. So and and even P52 is very tiny, you know, it's you know not much bigger than an index card. Uh, it has writing on both sides, but still it's ve- a very small fragment. These but, ones it doesn't say how small they are, but I'm sure that they are very small. So this would put all together then let's see here. It says that we would then have as many as 18 New Testament manuscripts from the second century and one from the first. So altogether, these fragments have 43% of all the New Testament verses are found on these manuscripts. Wow. So that's uh, quite a bit. So I guess apparently some of them are fairly large. Wow. Just, just the fact that any leather or papyrus or whatever these things are on could last that long is amazing in itself. Oh, absolutely. It is amazing that we have anything like that that's that old. You know, you're talking 2,000 years ago. So it is just amazing. <laughs> so that is the news for today's show. We're going to jump into our conversation. Just to remind everybody, we have been looking at a book. This is a terrific book. I recommend it to everyone. It's called Me, the Professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. And we have made arrangements. We are going to get a little interview with David coming up, probably about a 15-minute segment. David is a philosopher who teaches at Liberty University, and he's also a graphic artist. So he has done his book is in a cartoon format. So it's very interesting. It's written to, I'd say, high school level. I, I think I said junior high, high school level. But as we get into it, it's just a little bit too complex, I think, for the average junior high person. It may even be too complex for some high schoolers. But it's a fun read, Very a lot of visual jokes in it and things. And But the philosophy inside is very rigid, very solid. And so that's why we've been using it, we're basically doing a read through the book and, and pulling out these philosophical ideas that uh, David had the idea of what's called foundationalism and building your philosophy on a foundation of what you can know for certain and then building up and seeing how far you can get. How much can we learn about what we already know for certain just using logic and trying to be as open-minded uh, as possible. So that's what we're doing, the meaning of life. And we have gotten up to the part we ended last show with the idea that the prime mover is the same as the creator. So the person who we've discovered the supernatural exists and whoever the prime mover was, whoever started things moving with the energy of motion also is the creator because energy is another form of matter, or matter is another form of energy. So you could call the prime mover, another name for the prime mover would be the original provider of all energy. So if a thing provides the energy for the creation and the motion of all other things, then obviously we can call this thing all-powerful, or the fancy word that theologians will use is omnipotent. Okay, Because it must be the ultimate source for all energy, regardless of what form that energy takes, if it's matter or not. Right. So now we can add a very significant statement to our list of statements. And we're well, labeling is... the statements. We're giving numbers to them. So this is number 18. Right. It is omnipotent. Okay. What is, what is it? It is the... the thing we haven't determined yet, but the supernatural thing which started off 
the universe. Or the prime mover, which is number 17. That's right. So it is the prime mover, and the prime mover is omnipotent. I, now, I keep hearing that, and I keep thinking prime minister, but it's prime mover, right? That's right. We're not talking about the prime minister of the universe. No, no, no. Okay. A little bit more powerful than the prime minister. <laughs> Now, another interesting thing, when I was a kid, I, I remember coming across this uh, word that you just discussed as a kid, and I used to think that it was uh, pronounced omnipotent. Oh, yeah, it's not that. No, it's omnipotent. Omnipotent. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't know what it meant back then. I just, you know, knew it was a big fancy word. Emphasis on the correct syllable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I think oh, our sound ma uh, manager just garbled something there. Oh, he didn't understand me? I don't know. I don't know why. I no, said I it think correctly. it sounded like gibberish. <laughs> Emphasis on the correct syllable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you just sneezed or something. Now, so, number 18, it is omnipotent. This leads to another thing we can know for certain. Okay. If something provides the energy so that all other things can exist, then it is the foundation of all that exists, right? Right. Okay, it's the foundation of existence, therefore it is self-sustaining. It would have right? to be. It provides existence to everything else. Right. So we know that, number 19, it must be eternal. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. It doesn't come into existence. It provides existence for everything else. So it is eternal. This, these things are starting to sound a little familiar here. Omnipotent, eternal, prime mover. Yes, it supernatural. does. But don't jump the gun. We don't we, want to assume anything. We want to only use logic and slowly build step by step. But a bunch so, of people out there are going, aha, I know where this is going. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So, but we're going to walk you through step by step. Okay. <laughs> so, we know that um, time is a property of the universe, like length and mass, right? So, this, again, so time is something that's created. So, time has to come into existence. Another reason why we know that the prime mover must be eternal. Right. Time had to have started somewhere. Exactly. Because time starts when the universe starts. Right. All right, now, for those who might be just joining us, well, I tell you what, if you're just tuning in to the show, let us tell you that you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the meaning of life. Can you discover it through logic and only building on what we know for certain? If you'd like to call in, you can call us at 609-398-1020. And we're going over, this is material that we're getting out of a book called Me, the Professor, Fuzzy and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. David does a great job of building one idea upon the other. Now, I don't want to go, so let's review for those people then who are trying to follow along with us. I know for radio, this is a little bit hard. It'd be better if we could like do a slideshow for uh -huh. you. <laughs> but instead, Kirk and I are looking at the slides and reading them to you. So let's not go all the way back to number one. Let's start about halfway through, let's start at number eight. And okay. then, so, Kirk, if you can build us up from number eight to where we've gotten so far. Okay. Number eight, the universe is winding down. That we can be certain of. Right. It, entropy and all that fancy kind of science mm. stuff. That's right. Okay. Now, let me get my list here. Uh, well, I've got it if you want me to do it. I have it. 
Okay. Uh, number nine is the universe had a beginning. Mm-hmm. If it's winding down, then that means it must have started sometime. Exactly. Okay. Number 10 is the presence of motion must require an original mover. That's right. As Plato told us. Because every effect has a cause, right? Yep. Okay. So that's number 10. Number 11, uh, which is the next brick, is the presence of complexity requires a designer. Correct. All right. Another thing we know for certain. Right. Now, if we build on that, number 12 is the universe could not have begun on its own. Correct. In other words, if something made it, then the universe didn't make itself. Yeah, it needs to be made. It can't make itself. Right. Okay, number 13. The universe, therefore, is unable to sustain itself. Yep, it's unable to, and that we know from thermodynamics also. Right. It's decaying, it's falling apart. All right, now we're up to number 14. Number f- Point number 14 is, our universe, therefore, is inadequate. It cannot stand alone. Correct. All right, 15. Something else must exist, that which we call the supernatural. Right, something outside of the universe. Now, we're not talking dun, about... Dun, dun, we got to the supernatural. We're not talking about ghosts or anything like that. Just by supernatural, we just mean something outside of the natural. Although, if there were such things as ghosts, which we haven't determined yet through this process, apparently they would be outside of uh, the natural, right? They would be right. some kind of a, I don't know, what, different uh, dimension or something? Uh, I guess so. So, so we haven't totally ruled them out yet. Right. We but we're, we're just far. kind of speaking in technical scientific terms here. When we say supernatural, we're not using like the popular definition. We're using a more technical definition, which simply means something over and above the natural. Correct. Okay. Now, where was I? That was 15, right? Okay. Yep. Point number 16, therefore, is something supernatural must have ordered our universe. Correct. And we can know that for certain just by pure logic. Right. Number 17, that something was the prime mover. Uh, again, obviously. That right. is obviously true. Must be. Okay, point number 18, that prime mover must be omnipotent. No, I mean omnipotent. <laughs> right. <laughs> Old habits die hard. Yes, they do. Okay, that's 18. So now we're up to point 19. If it's omnipotent, it must be eternal. Right. All right. So, at first it looked like we had to stop at that we've discovered the supernatural. But we were actually able to determine a few things about this prime mover, things that we can know about it. Now, what would happen if we stopped here? Okay, we know some general things about this supernatural it, okay? But we would be, if we stopped here, we'd be left with a sort of a kind of uh, like a supernatural pantheism. Right. right. I mean, pantheism, pantheism is the belief that the universe itself is the ultimate self-sustaining and eternal power. Okay. So we know that we have to have more than just the universe itself. So as things stand in our kind of thought experiment that David Pensgard's taking us through, it would instead be this kind of realm outside our universe that's the ultimate power. So this kind of supernatural pantheism. Well, we've just kind of, with these uh, 19 points, we've kind of ruled out the idea of pantheism because we're saying that the universe all by itself can't be all there is. Something else must have been outside of it to get it started and get it moving and created in the first place. 
Yeah, so David's just pointing out that if you stopped here, you would just have like pantheism of a second order, where there's a kind of a layer outside of the universe, and right. that, that layer is somehow some kind of pantheistic um, force. Okay. In other words, a kind of an impersonal force out there, just kind of a magnified version of pantheism. That's all right. he's saying. Okay. In other words, he's saying... Okay, so we know a little bit, we can sort of figure out a little bit about this prime mover, but we haven't gotten very far. That's all he's really saying. Right. So, is that the end of the book? No, it's not, because we actually can continue. We can go one more step, at least. So, he says that fortunately, this is not where we're forced to leave things. We've got another important idea that we can recognize and it has to do with how the universe was designed, okay? So, we can learn from how the universe was designed as to what the designer would be like. Okay. So, from everything that we know, complex organization can only come from intelligent design, right? I mean, in the real world, from every science experiment and everything that we know about life and complex things only comes from intelligent design, right? Right. Ships, planes, buildings, they only come from an intelligent designer. This brings to mind a, a, a mind picture. If I'm in an airplane and I've been on vacation in Europe and I'm coming back to the U.S. and my airplane is coming into New York airport and you're coming over the city and you see all these huge skyscrapers sticking up and the bridges and the docks and the cars on the street and all this stuff moving around and everything, you wouldn't assume that all that stuff just erupted by itself out of the earth. Right, Something exactly. intelligent designed all this stuff down here that I'm looking at. That's right. That's right. And we know that. Now, what about life? Well, remember, left to itself, everything in the universe is going to fade away into useless mush. I mean, everything just decays. <laughs> life does non-living things do, you know, so we know that buildings right. and cars and, and things decay, but even life can't prevent it for long. And in the previous portion of the discussion, we talked about there are two things that can temporarily overcome this entropy or this dispersal into randomness, um, and that is life and intellect, intelligence. Right. So, only intelligence can actually reverse the process. Life kind of delays it for a while, so you can stay alive for longer than you would if, if, you, if you died. I mean, you would rot away in a week. I think my son, who's the cr criminal analyst, said that you know, if you're in the woods and you're dead, that within a week they, they need to have dental records because the bugs and the insects and everything, just you just rot away. Right, everything so, just deteriorates. Exactly. To the point where it's even unrecognizable. If, even if there weren't uh, insects to eat you, you're still just going to rot away and become uh, mush. Right. Leave a uh, slab of meat out on your kitchen counter for a couple of days and don't do anything to it and see what happens to it. Exactly. And this is what would happen to our living bodies if it wasn't for the fact that we can eat. So we can take in food from the environment and decay that instead of our bodies and use the energy from that. Right. So, so we're that, replenishing that just buys our, us some time. We're constantly replenishing our energy by breathing and eating and all that kind of stuff. Right. Some of us are replenishing our a little bit too much, though. Uh, yeah, so. need to go on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, but only intelligence can actually reverse the process where you can actually add complexity to a system like I can build a watch or I can build a house and thereby reverse this process of degradation. So through intelligence and through the application of force, I can create something. Right. So Wouldn't there's this- not one incidence of spontaneous generation of a complex organized system that has ever been seen. Okay. You know, the atheists loved their spontaneous generation decade, uh, centuries past until Louis Pasteur finally convinced everybody that it just wasn't so, that it was just mythology. But right. today, they still believe in the spontaneous generation of life, that single cells just spontaneously uh, formed. And this has never, ever been seen and cannot be seen. It's a total violation of the second law of thermodynamics. There's it no is, way. in fact, impossible. There's no way that lifeless chemicals can mix themselves together somehow and all of a sudden you've got a living thing there. That's right. If you believe in spontaneous generation, you believe in mythology, uh, you are not being rational, uh, you are, that is simply false. Uh, and that's not science. It's for such things to happen. It's not scientific. It's a scientific law that spontaneous generation is not possible. Correct. So let's look at a common misconception that's fooled many intelligent people and into believing that it has happened in the past. And we get these kinds of letters from atheists for the, to this show all the time based on this. And okay. David Pensgard in his book does a wonderful analysis of this. And it's, the subject is evolutionary theory and more specifically the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Right. And you know, Kirk, you and I have discussed this ad infinitum, but it's very, very important. So let's go through what Pensgard says in his book about these two subjects. This, okay. This macro- was a major revelation for me, too, a few years ago when I first heard these two terms and I realized that there were two different concepts of evolution that evolutionists often um, blend together as if they're one, but they're not. They confuse the two, and that's how they get mixed up. Right. So it's no wonder that they don't understand the evidence in front of them because they are equivocating these two processes, and these two processes were clearly pointed out by Theodosius Dobzhansky, a very famous evolutionist, so this is not, you know, creationist mumbo-jumbo. This is pure evolutionary doctrine. Right. Okay, so what is macroevolution? Macroevolution is the process that causes one kind of animal to gain complexity and become a higher kind of animal. Okay. Right? This, uh, this is what's typically meant when someone uses the term evolution. So if you just hear the term evolution in conversation, they're generally talking about this kind of change. This is Darwinian evolution. That's right. This is like, for instance, a worm uh, over time becoming a dog. Yes, over a long period of time or a microorganism becoming a microbiologist. Okay. Or a frog becoming a prince. Okay. It's a a process that allows... Yeah, it's an... It's It's a fairy tale. (laughs) Could it be a fairy tale for adults? (laughs) Oh, look, I can do what I want. There's no God. Yay! All I have to do is kiss a frog and make it into a prince. <laughs> yeah, now I can lick frogs for the drug-inducing high. That I can. <laughs> well, let's All not right. give anybody any ideas here. <laughs> so this is the, it's the process that allows an organism 
to develop a new organ for sight, say, or for movement that it didn't have before. Something right. new, some complex machinery, some complex biochemical pathway, some kind of new organ or new body part, something new that was not there in the DNA prior to this process. So or a wing to would, fly or a fin to swim or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of process that evolutionists claim that dinosaurs developed feathers and wings and eventually became birds. Okay. That is macroevolution. So it would provide, you know, say, an extremely complex biochemical processes in cells, right? Where prior in time there had only been simple biochemical processes. Right. So that is what macroevolution is. Now, what is microevolution? Okay. okay. Re remember that this is a separate, a different process. It's completely different right. from macroevolution. It's called microevolution. So this is the scientific term that is used for minor changes in organism. It's changes in current information. All right. Okay. okay so macroevolution is the addition of information. Microevolution is changes in the current information. Okay, okay? microevolution gotcha. cannot change one animal into a better one, but it can make some changes that better suit the animal. All right. Okay. So it's like taking an old coat that you no longer want to wear and changing it around and maybe making it into, say, a bag to carry around your shoulder or a wallet. Or making it into a pair of shoes or slippers, okay. right? It's a change to what you currently have. Okay. Now, now microevolution obviously then explains different breeds of dogs, horses, for example. It also is what allows wild animals to change in their environment. Okay. Now, it's, it's usually reversible, and we've talked about this in past shows. Uh, we talked about how the flu virus will revert back to its wild type or its normal type, its native type. And the same thing happens when you domesticate dogs. Uh, you change them, but if you put them back out in the wild, they revert back. Right. So, so, uh, so microevolution is usually reversible. But one thing that Pensgard points out, it's extremely important for the survival of life on Earth. Without it, everything would go extinct rapidly. So microevolution, you could also call it adaptation, right. is the ability of organisms to adapt to their environment. It allows them to survive because environments change. Things get hotter and colder. Uh, animals move from one part of the world to other parts, and they need to adapt to their new environments. Or maybe a food supply changes. Right. So in microevolution, the information in an animal's genes is kind of reshuffled, right? Or it could be turned on or off. You can turn on information that's been turned off previously. Right. All so that different genes can be used in the next generation. But this isn't creating new genes. This is just messing around with genes that are already there. Exactly right. Now, that's right. And messing around with genes, you could, you could disable them. If there's a mutation, it would disable a certain gene, and then right. things would not work as well. Now, that can sometimes provide a benefit to an organism. For instance, when bacteria mutate and become resistant to antibiotics, what's happening is that there's been a gene that has been shut off or has been mutated so that it no longer functions. The bacteria then can no longer digest 
the antibiotic so that it does not release the toxin into the cell that would kill the cell. Okay. So it is now immune to that antibiotic because it's not it's not digesting the portion of the uh, antibiotic that kills it. Okay. So let's think about an example, and Pensgard gives the example in his book of two squirrels, and they each have a gene for light or dark. He says black or white, but it's a light or dark gray color. Um, then they would have offspring that are a mixture. Okay, we we have each of us carries two copies of our genes in our DNA in the cells, and so we half of our DNA came from our mother and half came from our father. So in this example, if of a pair of squirrels, their offspring would be 25% would be dark, 50% of them would be gray, and 25% of them would be light colored. All right, so as an example, then he says one generation might find that the trees where they live have gotten darker than they were in the past. So darker squirrels then would be able to hide from predators like a wolf, say, right. easier and become more common. The darker squirrels would then be left alone and the lighter squirrels would be eaten, so the darker genes would be more common. If the trees, if they stayed dark over a long period of time for many generations, then the gene for a light color squirrel might actually even be lost. It could be lost to the entire population. Then, you, then you'll never get the reversion back. Huh. But theoretically, as long as you've got the gene for the light squirrels, it could revert back, and this would keep the squirrels alive if the trees then turned light again. If the trees, if the, the light colors were, gene was lost, and then the trees turned light and the squirrels couldn't hide anymore because now you got dark squirrels and light trees, then theoretically all the squirrels could die out. They could go extinct. And this, again, of course, fits in with second law of therm thermodynamics that complexity is decreasing, everything is dying off, and the whole universe is coming to an end, including the extinction of all species. Well, that, that brings up an interesting question. We know that uh, over the centuries there have been a lot of uh, animals and species that have gone extinct. You know, yes. For instance, the dinosaurs is an obvious one, but there are, you know, there are like hundreds or thousands of uh, different types of animals that have gone extinct over the centuries. And, you know, the, this makes sense with, with what you're saying, that my question for the evolutionist would be, why did all these animals go extinct? Why didn't they just evolve into something better that could survive instead of going extinct? Right. And the answer yeah. is they could only change to a certain point, and they couldn't change beyond that point. Therefore, they went extinct. Exactly right. Exactly right. You can so, only adapt uh, to a certain degree. You know, microevolution only works to a certain point, and it can't go beyond that point. That's right. And, and you can get some types of speciation where you can have, I mean, you might call the darker squirrels one species and the lighter squirrels another species. And theoretically, if they, if the, uh, they look different enough to each other, they will no longer mate. And so, theoretically, down as time increases in future generations, they may actually not even be able to meet as, as they begin to change. But again, it's still change from initial genetic information. And right. as that genetic information is distributed and divided up, so inside every organism is more information than it takes to make a single organism. And that's how adaptation or microevolution works, by using up that, that stored genetic information and, and speciating itself. So you can have, oh, say, a trout. 
and you might have 50 different species of trout. Well, originally you started out with an initial trout that contained all the genetic information for all those 50 species. Right. But, but then as the population grew and different parts of the population broke off, and went, say, up different rivers, then they had less of the genetic information, and so they look different from the other types of trout that have different genes from the original couple. So as you've said in the past, this is really only a matter of losing genetic information. It's never an example of new genetic information being created. It's only the loss of, of genetic information that makes these changes happen. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Evidence for Faith radio show. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the meaning of life. Can you discover the meaning of life by thinking logically and only building on things that we can know for certain? We're using a book by David Pensgard called Me, the Professor Fuzzy and the Meaning of Life, and we're going through the philosophical arguments contained herein. So, we're talking about macroevolution, microevolution, and macroevolution is different from microevolution. It requires that random changes in the genetic code or mutations result in a new gene not present in that organism before. And that new gene has to have a new function. And then if that function is a good function, it'll be passed on. Obviously, there could be, it could be a harmful function. But if it's a good function, then it'll be passed on. And supposedly, this is how animals... And of course, if it could do this, then it would be how animals could rise in complexity from simpler living things. You would get more complex organisms. Right. So if a... Let's give it... A, uh, Pensgard gives the example, let's say that you get a new squirrel gene, okay? It arises by mutation, and it gives it, say, sharp barbs on its back instead of fur. All right, now, let's say wolves don't like to eat squirrels with sharp barbs on their backs, right? Okay. <laughs> so the, uh, the wolves now don't want to eat any of these new squirrels. So the new gene would then get passed on to the offspring of the squirrel, Okay. It's also an example of how a single cell's genetic code might eventually become complex enough to become a larger animal, right? You, so right. by doing this process over and over again, you could theoretically get from a single-celled organism to a squirrel, Okay. right? So microevolution uses genetic information that's already present to allow adaptation, Right. and macroevolution depends on new information forming by accident. Okay. All right. Now, sometimes an information losing mutation can give an animal a survival advantage. We talked about bacteria, right? Right. But macroevolution depends on not only a survival advantage, but it also has to be an increase in information and complexity. So you can get a survival advantage from a loss of information or from a turning on of current information that was turned off in the DNA. Right. But that's not macroevolution. Macroevolution requires a survival advantage and an increase in information and complexity. So, and to put this another way, would this be reasonable to say that uh, a good example of what you're talking about would be if we start out with six letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, 
and these letters can reproduce themselves, and we keep getting new A, B, Cs, D, e, Es, and Fs. But right. some of them get mutations in their genes, and we end up with a GHI, and then it just keeps going like that until eventually we have an, a 26-letter alphabet that has formed from the original six. So then yeah, you've okay. got something much more complex than what you started out with. Correct. But the yeah, question is, that, does that happen? Right. Yeah, well, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> right. See, macroevolution depends on blind chance. Right. Right. So as Pengard's pointed out in his book, we've learned that when things are left to chance, right, or things are left to kind of the forces or the laws of nature, right, that they always become less complex, not more complex. Okay. They break down rather than building up. Right. And in addition, macroevolution is something that has never been observed. Okay. There is no known example of an increase in information. There is no known example of new DNA coding being added to a species. In other words, there has never been an observed example of spontaneous generation of new information. Exactly right. Unfortunately, what people do is they use microevolution or adaptation to prove that macroevolution is a fact. They say that one leads eventually to the other. That's right. But they're two very different ideas, right? Everyone agrees that one happens and the other one is impossible. Yes, the creationists is the possible. Creationists have no problem whatsoever with the idea of microevolution, but they exactly. do have a problem with macroevolution. Right, because we don't believe in fiction. We don't believe in spontaneous generation. We don't believe in the creation of complexity out of nothing. Uh, we don't believe in uh, information just appearing, just as we don't believe that Mount Rushmore was created by wind and rain. Right, or New York City was an, a an accident of nature. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but why would people believe in this fiction, right? I mean, Why would they? <laughs> right, why would they? The, the only reason to hold on to the feasibility of macroevolution is that it is somehow attached to a larger question. Uh-huh. Gee, I wonder what that larger question could be. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> oh, maybe that takes us back to what our original topic is. Right? We are doing this thought experiment. We are trying to figure out the meaning of life. And we're forced to admit that our universe was given high levels of complexity or low entropy by something supernatural. But what could be capable of doing this? Hmm. Good well, question. <laughs> well, we already know that it's all powerful. Right. right? So, so let's review. Uh, let's go back to number 15. Okay. So, Kirk, if you can... Do the, the reading of the certainties, <laughs> starting with number 15. The top five list. That's right. Okay. Number 15, something else exists, the supernatural. All right. And 16, therefore, must be something supernatural ordered our universe. Mm -hmm. If 16 is true, then 17 means it was the prime mover. Yep. If 17 is true, then that prime mover must be, number 18, omnipotent. Yep. And if it's omnipotent, number 19, it must be eternal. Well, they don't—now, be careful. They don't necessarily follow one from each other. 
um, they follow from previous things. Okay. So like uh, it's eternal doesn't follow from it's omnipotent. Omnipotence and eternality follow from previous ideas about complexity and, and what the prime mover must be like. Okay. So, but it's still that we can know for certain and we can build each layer, each certainty based on previous ideas. Gotcha. All right, so that adds number 20. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> it is infinitely intelligent. Okay, whatever it is, this prime mover, if it designed and created all things, then it knows the details about all things. Makes sense. Right? I'm, it had to, it designed them and created them. Therefore, it knows all about them, obviously, just as a car manufacturer, designer, the guy who designed and built the car, he knows all about the car. Right. He's so a car expert. So we would call expert. this attribute omniscient, okay? uh-huh. another theological term. Okay. Right? So this includes knowledge of, a, of the future. Okay. Why? Well, remember, space-time is that fabric that the universe is built out of. So time is actually a created order. It's part of the the fabric which all matter and energy exists, and it it requires an origin, right? It it requires a beginner. Okay. Therefore, if time is a created thing, then its creator exists independently of it. Right. And its creator can see the end of time just as easily as the beginning. Wow. So if it is outside of time, Looking in, then it's omniscient. It knows the details about, so that'd be number 21. It is omniscient. So number 20 is it's infinitely intelligent, and it is therefore omniscient. It knows all about time. It knows all about the future and the past. It knows the details about all things, past, present, future. And after all of that, there's really nothing left to know, right? I mean, if you know everything about the entire universe and the past and the present and the future, then you know everything there is to know. Right. So in our quest for the meaning of life, and we're coming towards the end of the show, so we're really ending this at a great place, we reach this point of incredible importance that that David Pensgard has led us down. All right? So what is this it? What is this prime mover? Well, we've discovered the existence of a being that is, number one, all-powerful. Right. Number two, infinitely intelligent. Right. Number three, all-knowing. Right. And number four, the creator of all things. Uh-huh. So, Kevin, I mean, Kirk. <laughs> how was I thinking of Kevin? <laughs> I, I was talking to Kevin today earlier. Kevin Harold. Yes, Kevin Harold. So that great apologist, Kevin Harold. Yes, the creator of Assumption Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> uh, no, that would be Joe McGittigan. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Wrong yep. guy. There you go. Wrong sorry, guest. Joe. Now we're <laughs> insulting everybody. <laughs> I insulted you. We insulted Kevin and scratch Joe. That, scratch that off the tape. Okay, well, yeah. Hopefully they don't listen to the podcast. I had a senior moment. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I'm going to start calling you Kevin from now on. Well, you know, it's a K name. As I, when we introduced Kevin on the show, I said he's okay because he's got a K name. Uh huh. Well, I get so, called Kurt a lot. It's actually yeah. Kirk, K I R K. Okay, Kurt, Kirk, so, whatever your name. Just is. Just wanted to make that clear. All right, now we were building to a crescendo. We kind of lost the crescendo here. <laughs> All right, so let's build up, right? Hurry what up! We only have a minute. 
There's actually a word for such a being. And what is that word? word? I think the word might be God. (laughs) Yes, God. There is a word for such a being. It is God. How about that? (laughs) All right, read the definition for God. The American Heritage Dictionary definition of God is a being conceived as the perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, originator, and ruler of the universe, the principal object of faith and worship in monotheistic religions. All right. So David Pengard has led us down this amazing chain of ideas that we know for certain. We now know for certain that God exists. We have built using logic and only what we know for certain to come to the conclusion that God exists. This is truly amazing, right? Okay, so he points out that there are still many things that we don't know. We don't know if God is the only thing that's supernatural, right? Kirk, you mentioned ghosts in the past. Right. And we don't know who this God is. So we must go on and we will do that next, well, not next week because we have a special show next week, but we'll go on two weeks from now. So stay tuned. That's right. There's a cliffhanger for you. (laughs) Who is this God that we now know for certain exists? Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. If you'd like me to come and speak at your church or your event, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. (laughs) 